This is the last Sunday after Epiphany, and the last Sunday after Epiphany always ends with an Epiphany. Every year we read the story of the Transfiguration from one of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so this Sunday we read the version from Mark's Gospel in this cycle of readings. And between Epiphany, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, and the last Sunday after Epiphany, we discuss various themes that have something to do with what the green seasons always uh, focus us on, and that is the nature, the cost, and the ways and the means of Christian discipleship. But with the tincture of how do we see what we read and hear at the liturgy uh, as things that will help us make manifest the presence of Christ to the world. So I thought what I'd do at the beginning of the sermon would be to do a little recapitulation, principally because, as many of you know, I am so fond of the word recapitulation. I like to use it in any opportunity... (laughs) And so I take, at the end of seasons, the opportunity to do recapitulation. I don't know whether that was because my grandparents used recapitulation a lot, but I've always thought it was a great word. The Sunday after Epiphany is called the Baptism of Christ. And unlike Eastern Christians, the Western Church in its liturgy, reads as the gospel for the epiphany, the story of the visit of the three wise persons to the infant Savior, the three magi. And its purpose in the Western liturgy is to focus the attention of people at worship on the universal significance of the birth of Jesus because the tradition tells us that these three magi were from all the corners of the known world. And so they now come to worship and pay homage to the infant Jesus. The Eastern Orthodox on Epiphany read the story of the baptism of Christ. They begin from the jump on his public ministry. But we wait till the Sunday after Epiphany so that we can use the Sunday as the opportunity to talk about the importance and centrality of baptism in our common life and that understanding baptism as the beginning where we follow the Savior and are able now to do what he did by adoption and grace, that the significance of the sacrament of baptism is to enable us, to empower us, to give us the ability to be God's people in the world. So we begin the season of Epiphany, the first Sunday, with baptism because it's going to come up a lot now throughout the season of Lent. One of the great things about the liturgical renewal in the life of the church has been that we have understood the ancient reason for the season of Lent, which was uh, not principally about contemplating our sinfulness, but about reconnecting ourselves to the promises made at our baptism. And so you can understand that in whatever iteration the church has had 
of how it understands what is happening sacramentally at baptism. And in the present renewals for the last 40 years, we have focused on something in the Episcopal Church and in the other churches that have renewed their liturgy in the Anglican Communion on the baptismal covenant. The idea of God acting and bringing us by adoption and grace into the fullness of Christ, but also understanding the reciprocal nature of baptism that we have now a role to play to cooperate what has been done in us in Christ. And you hear me say to you over and over again that we don't understand baptism merely as cosmic spot remover, but as the empowerment of all faithful Christians to be God's people in the world, and that means to be the best human being that you can be. Remember, it's part of our Christian anthropology that we believe that we are made in God's image and that this image resides within each of us. And baptism is a way of focusing on, if you will pardon the pun, this image surfacing now in front of, the, of God's faithful people, personally and corporately. So the week after the baptism of Christ, we then move to the idea of our vocations. Because if the baptismal vocation now, by adoption and grace, being God's people in the world, being able now to do Christ's work in the world, being members of the body of Christ, we then have some help with regard to understanding the importance of our vocations. And we believe that wherever you find yourself, in big and small ways, your vocation can be a means for you to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love to the world by modeling, once again, what it means to be the best human being that you can be. Also, it was a Sunday to talk about how do you find the ways and the means to strengthen your vocation to give you a renewed sense of enthusiasm and perseverance with regard to doing what you believed was the thing God wanted you to do? And how do you find the ways and the means to be strengthened for the long haul? Because part of being a healthy person is learning how to develop and encourage and nurture that stamina. The more I'm in this, the more I realize that that's one of the great questions spiritually before everyone. How do you go into this for the long haul? You know? It's kind of hard these days because we have the ability, and sometimes it's a good thing, to change courses in the middle of the river, as my grandparents would have said. Nowadays, a lot of people don't work for one company for their whole life or embrace one vocation for their whole life. I was at the, uh, one of the dinner groups uh, on Friday and we got to talking at the dinner table about Plaxo, which is an internet thing that connects everybody up with stuff. And there's another one that business people use a lot called LinkedIn. I heard at the dinner group that LinkedIn is not used just for business purposes, but to assist people in 
cooking up. In a corporate sense, but then again, you never know, you know. The reason this is important is that uh, it got started so that you could find somebody whose email had gone stale. So maybe if you hadn't seen him in five years or more, or ten years, someone said, in ten years, you're probably doing a different thing. You probably got a different job. A lot of people do. So how do we think about vocation in those terms? Rather than be a curmudgeon and say, oh gee, it's a terrible development, to say, is the resilience and the stamina and the strength and the vision and the ability that you have received through wishing to be centered in God, yearning to be centered in God, possessing what one book refers to as the holy longing, that you are able now to fulfill these vocational impulses in the best possible way. So vocation is important. And then flowing out of that was a Sunday about authority. What do we believe is authoritative in in our lives? And it affords a preacher like me to begin to say that one of the difficulties I have with the current age is that most of us believe that what is principally authoritative is me. Right? I am the principal authority about my life. You know, like Professor Irwin Corey, the world's foremost authority. I remember seeing him years ago in San Francisco when he said, and is it not true that beauty is in the behind of the beholder? (laughs) So you try to sort that out. I don't know. The autonomous self. We make our own reality. We determine what is true. All of us believe, I think, it is an advance that we believe as people and individually and corporately that we should be permitted to seek our own level. That we should not be prevented because of things we have no control over to seeking our own level and being the best people that we can be and having the right kind of self-regard and encouraging others to have the right kind of self-regard. And yet we understand and know that there are limits to this and if we wish to understand what can be truly authoritative, we might believe and suggest that there are some things outside ourselves that may be true and deserve our authority, deserve being followed or believed in or understood as constituting an authority in our life. I've come to the conclusion that there are some things that may be true whether David Brewer believes them or not. And for some people that just simply is too much. You know? So we said as Episcopalians, there are three things that we understand as authoritative. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And this is going to be a starting place for us to understand that things are bigger than we are. You know, I came to the Episcopal Church in my late teens. And when I came to it, I came to worship in the Episcopal Church, and I said to myself, 
you know, this thing is much bigger than me. This is big. And I wanted to be part of something like that. Something that was bigger than me. Something that may have been true whether or not I could perceive it or not. Something that was always going to raise me to the highest common denominator and not the lowest common denominator. So pondering the nature of authority, I think, is an important thing. The next week I talked a little bit about the Apostle Paul and how he gets a bad press for a lot of things but ought not to. And that really the centerpiece of his spiritual and theological outlook is something that we call participation in Christ. The coming to the acknowledgement that all people are invited to participate, all people are welcome to participate, and that it is part of God's plan and purpose that all people be invited into his saving embrace. Remember that this is an extravagant thing for a man to say who believed that he was blameless before God. Paul wasn't somebody like Martin Luther who did all this religious stuff, was as devout as he could be, and was worried constantly that he was not saved. Paul had no worries about that. Paul said he was blameless. Paul said that if the day of judgment came right now, he could stand before God completely without any scruple. He had dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. So he had to come to the conclusion is what about all these people who haven't? And do they get to come in? And what kind of litmus test has to exist for them? And he came to the conclusion is you don't have to do what I do. Or did. Because God loves you and forgives you and accepts you unconditionally. And it is my mission to say that not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. To extend God's welcome. And finally last week we talked about healing and wholeness and the importance of the church as an agency for healing. You know, the church these days has a lot of work to do with regard to healing people who have been badly hurt by the church. And this is a bit of a paradox, isn't it? We have to be concerned to say that, you know, there are places that have, where we've gone off the rails here and we wish to be a place where you can feel safe and that you can connect with this holy longing that you might have to the plan and purposes of God and to believe and know that God accepts and forgives and loves you unconditionally. That that's part of the healing work of the church. And yet, we learned in the Gospel last week and have talked about before that healing is not what most of us want or think it is or should be, which is a return to the status quo ante, which is the fancy way of saying, I'm sick, I'm upset, I'm jammed up, and I want to return to the way it was before I got that way. Symptom relief. We should all expect that to some degree, but the problem is we don't get it. So does that mean that God isn't involved in our lives? Or does it mean that God has a bigger view of what the nature of healing is 
than we do. In my ministry, I have known families and people who have been afflicted with deep difficulties, both physical illness and emotional difficulty, and though those things were never fully and completely healed symptomatically, enormous healing took place relationally, and the ability for people to have a sense of strength and the ability to cope and to be an example to other people who were similarly afflicted in ways that were profound. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe I need to expand my view of what healing is. And the Savior certainly was reluctant to heal people because he knew it wouldn't be understood properly. And always sought to point what went on as to a greater reality and truth beyond itself. So we begin this because you and I are going to do, if we take it seriously, some serious reflection and self-examination during the season of Lent. That's part of what it's for. And so we may be going over stuff and we're going to need to know that the Savior is present to us in a way that's going to point us to how we can have a deeper and more mature understanding of where all the adversity hits in this. Not just a yearning and wish that it gets taken away immediately, we don't have to think about it anymore. You know, the Scarlet O'Hara method of moving through life, right? So today, we're with the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a high mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before them. If you read it in the Greek text, it says metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. We've heard that word before, haven't you? Metamorphosis. Sort of like a grasshopper or something, you know. Going. But he was changed in front of them. He looked different. So how do we make sense of this? Father Thomas Keating said that on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. That is to say, the divine source of his human personality poured out through every pore of his body in the form of light. The transfiguration manifests the kind of consciousness that Jesus enjoyed which was not bound by the three-dimensional world. The spacious world of unity with reality enabled him to be in direct contact with all creation, past, present, and future, and Mark's purpose of having Jesus discuss and converse with Moses and Elijah was for the purpose of seeing that he stands in direct continuity with the great figures of their sacred history. As we go through Lent and we begin to think about just before Lent we read this, we might put two and two together in a meditation and say, you know, Moses and Elijah were in the wilderness 40 days too each of them. And Jesus is going to go into the wilderness for 40 days next Sunday. And how do we think about our own wilderness experience? And what does seeing the transformed Savior do for us in this regard? The potential that exists for all of us to be transfigured and to be able to reflect back to the world that reality. In the biblical story, 
This enabled three of the principal apostles to in advance of all of the things that will occur now in Jerusalem to have seen Jesus in depth and to know who he is and how this will play itself out ultimately as we go through these difficult and trying times. That we have seen his glorification now and we know exactly what's going to happen. So if you were thinking about this and saying, how would I appropriate something like this? I'm never going to go somewhere and see somebody with the divine light pouring out of every pore of his body. I'll bet you have seen people who have glowed. In the Eastern tradition, they call it the uncreated light, the light that comes from no human source, that people, their faces shine. I saw this once most dramatically when I was at the Trinity Institute at Grace Cathedral in 1973 and I met Brother Roger Schultz, the founder of the Taizé community in France, and spoke with him for about 15 minutes. And I thought, there's something, this guy is glowing. And I don't quite know what, how to, what to do with this. But it was clear that there was some uncreated light and energy within him uh, that had transfiguring power. All of us have known people who have been through difficult situations, who have looked drawn and haggard, have experienced some lift, some ability to turn their lives around, and now when you see them again, they're glowing, or they're smiling, or the, the wrinkles have sort of gone out of their face. They look like they're a little bit more serene, a little bit more at peace. Father Keating, when he describes what goes on, says this about the power of the work of Christ. I love this. Here we find in the transfiguration the basic pattern of the Christian path. Jesus, by his example and teaching, approaches us from without in order to awaken us to his divine presence within. The eternal word of God has always been speaking to us interiorly, but we have not been able to hear his voice. When we are adequately prepared, the interior word begins to be heard. The external word of scripture and the internal word or starting arising from the depths of our being become one. Our inner experience is confirmed by what we hear in the liturgy and read in the scripture. You know, it isn't some sensational thing that occurs. All of a sudden, the dots get connected even for a split second, and you begin to understand we are not God, but our true self is God. So this week, think about whether or not you've ever had the experience of seeing somebody who glowed. See if by virtue of your own practical wisdom and other things, you are able to reflect back to others the highest and best of what it means to be a human being. And as you begin the season of Lent on Ash Wednesday, know that this interior light is available to you as a resource always. Amen.